0: For the summer and we're making plans for the fall. We're into this series now of uh, talking about work and um, at the beginning of each of the series I've been featuring uh, a painting by a French painter Millier I think that's right and uh, he, he painted these pastoral paintings of people working in fields that just get to more than just a job that these people are working at a calling, they're working at life. And so I I don't want you to limit, when I'm talking about work, I don't want you to limit to what we're doing just to make a living or bring home a paycheck, but everything we do, every effort we make, that there is something that happens when we spend ourselves and our resources in order to gain something. This morning I want to talk about work as God intended it, and I want to go all the way back to the beginning, because I think that we sometimes get off track about how God wired us and made us, and not just to work, but how to work together. And so um, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to look at a few things we see from the creation narrative and what comes out immediately after that. But as I think about work as God intended it, I also look around, and the reason I'm concerned about this is I see that people are getting burned out all the time. And in fact, as a pastor... Um, the statistics for pastors who get burned out are extremely high. Um, There is a very high dropout rate where pastors just, you know, I'm done. Uh, A good friend of mine just posted last week on Facebook that he's leaving his church and leaving pastoral ministry. Um, He's not much older than I am, um, has had a difficult couple of years in ministry, He's a very fruitful and uh, capable leader, spiritual leader. His church does not want him to go, but he is exhausted. And that's exactly the words he used. He said, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, and I'm done. And uh, my heart grieves over that. And many of you see the same thing, where you see people around you, you just go, you know what, I, I'm done. Or even if I can't walk away from that employment... I'm just going to call it in. I may show up. I may be a warm body at work, but I'm really not pursuing anything with passion. Maybe you've even seen it like I've seen it in the church where somebody helped out with the kids for a few years, or somebody served in the kitchen for a while, and after a while they go, You know, I just don't want to do this anymore. I've done this and I'm tired and it's thankless and I'm not sure that it achieves anything and so I just want out. That's one of the things I really try to push back against in our church. I do not want you to do something you don't want to do because it won't go well, right? And what I find is when I look around and I see people who are burning out and walking away, I notice that for many people it's because they find that what they're doing is simply meaningless toil. I am just doing something, I'm going through this, and I am spending my resources, my energy, my life, and I am not achieving anything. That's a perfect recipe for burnout. Work hard, achieve nothing. There, there are few things you can do in life that will cause you to stop as quickly as getting exhausted and have nothing to show for it. Nothing to show for it. I, I, you guys know I'm a kind of a sports fan. Yesterday morning I got up and I turned on the FIFA World Cup. I like soccer, and I watched Iceland and Argentina, and, you know, on the books, on paper, all of this, Argentina should have blown them away. Iceland, I found this out as I was watching and listening to the commentators, Iceland is the smallest country ever to field a team at the FIFA World Cup. And this team from this little tiny country that wasn't supposed to do very well, they tied. They tied, which... You know, most of us would go, well, nobody won. But in Iceland, they think they won. And at the same time, you have Argentina, who's this powerhouse, and they've got this incredibly talented guy, Messi, who's playing for them. And, and everybody's just waiting every time he touches the ball. What magical thing is he going to do? And he got a penalty kick. And in soccer, penalty kicks are virtually a sure thing. Virtually. And so then everybody goes, okay, now they're going to win, and I'm watching the game, and he kicks the penalty kick, and and he just kind of flubs it, and the goalkeeper reads it and saves it, and you could just kind of see the Argentine players go, oh boy, And, and, and then it's just, you know, let's just bide our time and get out of this game, we're losing to somebody we never should have lost to, and... And we've spent ourselves, and our best player couldn't bring it, and it's meaningless toil. You see, in life, when we just go through things where we're, we're just putting in our time, and we're just calling it in, and spending ourselves to exhaustion, have nothing to show for it, what happens over time is what I call soul-stealing work. It's work that just robs you of your soul, your passion, your spiritual capacity just dries up. And some of you have been here to where you get up in the morning and you look at the alarm clock and you know you've got to go to work and you just pray and you say, God, anything else today but going to work. If you want to have a major traffic accident on the way to work, I'm fine with that. You know, we're, we're to that point where going in and punching that time clock is the last thing we want to do because we feel like we have nothing to gain and everything to lose by being there and I will come away a worse person, a worse human being because I've spent my time for them at that place and I all I get for it is some dollars and cents. That's what we see and, and in that mechanism of just working because it's required of us, but we are, it seems meaningless. In that mechanism, people become machines. And some of you have worked for large companies where you feel this way, and you feel like, you know, I'm not a person anymore. I'm just a machine. I'm here to churn out a product. I'm here to get something done. They don't care about me and what's going on around me and what's happening Around me, I read an article this week from, that was in the Business Insider magazine. I was looking up articles on how companies keep their employees encouraged and what mistakes they make. And one of the things that Business Insider magazine said was, the number one thing employees can do to keep their employees energized is pay attention to what is going on in their personal life. And I know that in business at times, that's the last thing you want to deal with. I don't want to have to deal with an employee whose marriage is coming apart. I don't want to have to deal with an employee who is, uh, who's broke financially and can't keep it together financially. I don't want to deal with an employee who's addicted. I just want them to come and do their job and go home. And when we adopt that kind of mentality, we make people machines. It's just like I just want to flip the switch turn the person on so that they will do their job and at five five o'clock I'll flip it back again and they're done and I don't want to hear any more from you. I just want to go home and be done. And in that kind of an environment, we lose our humanity. In fact, that's what happened in the Old Testament to the people of Israel who had gone to Egypt because Egypt was... The land of promise. It wasn't the promised land, but it was the land of promise. Because if you remember the Old Testament story, Joseph had gone ahead. He had been sold. He was human trafficked into slavery by his own family, his own brothers. And he went there and then by virtue of God's intervention and God speaking to him, he goes from being in prison as an accused rapist to being the second in command in the whole country. And he helps them to avert famine. And because of that, they have food. And all these refugees come flocking to Egypt. And there in Egypt, he encounters his brothers who no longer recognize him. And they're starving. And he says, no, I will forgive you. Come on in. You're welcome here. And the people of Israel... Set up home in Egypt because here we will eat. Here we will be provided for. Here we'll get taken care of. Here we have a livelihood. We have a job. We have work that is going to feed us. And then you jump forward 400 years to the time of Moses. And everything has changed. And the pharaohs forgot what Joseph did. And instead they looked at the Israelites and they were afraid of him And so they enslaved them again. And as a nation... They work as slaves and they cry out and they say, we think God has forgotten us. (laughs) You're not alone in that cubicle sitting at that desk or at that workstation going, God has forgotten me. Think about the Israelites, 400 years in slavery, God has forgotten us. We are nothing more than machines. And so, of course, it didn't feel good to get up and go to work when your slave masters drive you. I would just suggest that there are pieces of this story that are common to humanity. Throughout history, people have done this to one another in virtually every setting. Even in America. And so... In that, then, I want to go back, because if that's the way we see things happen over and over and over again, how is it that we got things so messed up? So I want to go back and see what God intended from the beginning. So if you'll bear with me, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 1, we have this huge, broad stroke picture of how God brings the world into being in six days And he just speaks things into being. And on the seventh day, he rested. And we talked about that earlier in this series. But now in chapter 2, he's bringing some order in the garden. And so this is what we read from verses 15 through 22. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. I want you just to pay attention to those words. We're going to come back to them. To tend and watch over it. But the Lord warned him, you, are, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper. And pay attention to that word, too. If you're following along in your Bible, it might be translated differently. I will make a helper Who is just right for him? So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. So I'm just going to stop there. I want to look back at a couple of words here because, and, and I just, I got to give a real big disclaimer here. I am not a Hebrew scholar, and so uh, if I mispronounce words, Forgive me, um, but I find this very interesting. You see, as the Lord in this story creates this garden and places the man in the garden, remember, this is before original sin. This is prior to the fallenness of humanity. This is while everything is as God intends it. And in that context, in verse 15, we hear God say, he places the man in the garden to work and to tend it. And different translations say it in different ways, but some of you remember when we started this series, I talked about this word in Hebrew for work, avodah. Avodah, the work of our hands. It's the same word that is used in Hebrew in the Old Testament for worship or to serve. And so here he is, this man is placed in the garden, and God says, I want you to work it and keep it. I want you to, it's actually a different derivative, but of the same root. I want you to work the garden. So God is giving the man an opportunity to work, not as a curse, not as judgment or punishment, but as an opportunity to participate in the perfection of this place. And so then, so he says, I want, you to, I want you to work at it. I want you, some say, to till it. And keep it. And that word, it's not the same word. It's not avodah or aved, which is the derivative of that. But he uses the word shamar. To keep it, which that word shamar has other contextual meanings that is used at times to guard or protect or look after. So I want you to work it, I want you to make it productive, and I want you to keep it protected. Now, I've got all kinds of questions because I wonder what what was the man charged with protecting it from? What was there to guard against? I I don't know. I've got more questions than I've got answers. Except I know at this moment from what we read that this person is given the opportunity to be participatory in the wonder and the beauty of the garden. And that was part of how God intended things. That tells us a little bit about our role in work in the world. God intends, prior to any kind of corruption or distortion, God intends for us to do things that bring about the beauty of this place. Wherever this place may be. Then, as we follow along in the story... You know, the Lord gives the man the opportunity to name everything. All these animals, all these, all these beings, birds in the air, and they come through and they name them. And I've got to tell you, i just got to stop for a moment and go down a little bit of a rabbit trail because I just wonder how incredibly difficult and amazing it was for him to name all these animals. One of the things I love, I'm a little bit bilingual or multilingual, and uh, the, the language I'm most fluent in, other than English, is Afrikaans. And Afrikaans is a, a language that's spoken by just a few million people in southern Africa. And they named African animals. And I love the way they name African animals. So oftentimes, if I'm in Africa and you were there with me, and we'd be looking at wild animals, I would tell you what the Afrikaans name is because they're incredibly descriptive. You know, we have animal names that are derivations from Greek and and uh, Arabic and other languages. But the Afrikaans people looked at these strange, wild animals. These were people who had come from Europe. They were generally of Dutch and French descent. And they looked at these animals and they thought, how in the world can we describe this so you know exactly the animal I intended? And so like some of the animals have these wonderful names, like a giraffe. The literal translation of the word for giraffe in Afrikaans. The Afrikaans word is kamilpat. And literally, that's a camel horse. Or a leopard is a laypat, which sounds very much like our leopard, but the literal translation of lepat is a lazy horse. And you go, where in the world did they get that? Well, if you know anything about leopards, you usually see them up in trees, and they're usually laying up there. They're just kind of hanging out in the tree. That's a lazy horse up in the tree. But anyway. They have these wonderful descriptive names. So here the man gets to describe and name these animals. And all these animals come by. And I'm sure there's wonder and amazement as he sees everything from a mongoose to an elephant. Everything from a mouse to a whale. And yet, everything that goes by, every bizarre and wonderful animal, and the Lord says, you know, there is no suitable partner for him. There is no animal that can stand with him. And so, of course, then we know that he goes into this surgery and he creates woman. And that brings us to verse 18, where I said, pay attention to this, a helper who was suited to him, or a helper who was perfect for him. Some of translations said uh, called it a help meet, and then we changed that word a little bit because of the way it sounded, to a help mate, which is a really bad translation for it, I think. Because here's the thing, in, in verse 18, when God says, I will make a helper perfect for him. He uses these words in Hebrew, and it's Ezer Kenegdo. You don't have to remember that. You can ask me if you want afterwards, and I'll tell again. Ezer Kenegdo. And, and, and here's the thing, and this, is, this has to do with work. He says, I'm going to make a helper, Ezer, for him. Now you and I have been at times... The recipients of corrupted translation. Because oftentimes, when we see that as a helper, it is translated sometimes in our minds and sometimes intentionally by other people. It is translated that someone who's a helper is kind of an assistant or a subordinate. You know? Just as some of us have a, a, like maybe an administrative assistant at work or, a, or someone who comes alongside and they're learning the ropes, but they don't do your job. They're just there to help you do your job. That is not the way this is because that word Ezra is used multiple times in the Old Testament, about 21 times, I believe. And of those times, 14 out of the 21, it's used to refer to the Lord. The Lord is my helper, the Lord is my Ezer, and you and I know that the Lord is not our subordinate. The Lord is not our assistant. The Lord is not our hired hand. The Lord is our helper, this strong power. And the Lord describes the woman as a strong power. Not an assistant, not a subordinate but a strong power. And then there's this Kenegdo piece. So this strong power that I'm sending you now, most of us guys, when I describe a woman as a strong power, somewhere inside of you are going, I know about that. I recognize that. And then he says, so Ezra partnered with Kenegdo. Kinegdo is... Uh, Most literally translated face-to-face. I like this. A partner who is face-to-face. So you understand there's this sense of of equality and value. And once again, there are people who have kind of corrupted and done things with the translation that I don't like. And so some of them say, no, it's not face-to-face. Face-to-face means opposite. Opposite. And they, 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 they create distance rather than creating equality. And I think as God's saying, Ezra Connecto he's saying, I have a helper who is perfect for you, like synchronized gears. The one without the other does nothing. It just does not work. But as these equals come together, something dynamic happens and strength and power and dignity is gained. And so... I call it this strong, equal partner. And as a pastor, I get a little bit rankled and I push back when I hear people talk about marriage and relationships between men and women in some way subordinated. Because here's what I think. I think that affects our entire mindset for how we go about work. And how we achieve things and get things done in this world. Now we know that men and women are not identical. We know that. But let's not make the mistake of thinking somehow one is devalued over the other. And I would suggest to you that we went through a significant time in history where women were devalued in Western civilization. And then about 40 years ago, things started to change and get kind of flipped over to where men at times become devalued. And one of the manifestations of that I believe, is the absentee father problem we have in America today. And there's a disconnectedness that is not healthy and helpful. And I think it has to do with us not seeing each other in equal value, face-to-face, strong power together. That's a whole Series of messages on its own. But this is how I understand this passage of Scripture, and it's helpful to me, especially when I've got to go home and face my wife. To know that she is my helper, she is a source of strength to me, and a source of strength that does not have to sit underneath my feet, but stands right beside me. You see, As we give this value to each other, the partnership that is possible becomes powerful. And then, as we can function in these ways, we become vital. We become vital. Things happen. I got to move on. I wanted to tell a story, but I don't think I want to tell that story because it might hurt some people. I want to talk to you then about how we find our passion and our purpose together. If God created us and intended us to do things and achieve things, if that's a part of our being, a part of our makeup, even prior to any fallenness or brokenness or damage done to us, and if God created partnership as part of that, where people are valued and their participation is strong, if that is true... The only way we find our purpose and passion together is to do it together. That's it. The only way you can have that kind of purpose and passion is in some sense of community. I think that's why God looked around with the man and he goes, you know, there's just no animal that's going to get it done. A horse isn't going to do it. A dog may be a man's best friend, but that's not going to get you there. You're not going to achieve what you need to achieve. You're not going to do what I've made you to do unless there is another person connected to you. And so here's what I would suggest. Here's just some practical suggestion. I think it is extremely important that we find a way to love our work. You've heard the saying, and it's been attributed to different people, and I'm not quite sure who exactly came up with it originally, but you'll never have to work a day if you love your work. And I think we need to find ways to love our work. My father-in-law worked for the same company for 40 years. Literally right out of high school, he got a job with this company, and he worked making packing crates out of lumber. That was the first job he got. And over the years, he worked and he worked and he moved up and eventually moved into an office setting and kind of a middle management position with a big, big company here in the United States. Worked there for 40 years before he left. When he retired, he and I were having a conversation and he was a little bit discouraged or even depressed as recent retirees tend to experience. All of a sudden, you're no longer needed and you're no longer doing these things. And he was a little bit down and he said to me, you know, I worked for 40 years for them and I wonder why I did it. Did I ever really achieve anything? And I said, well, we know you achieved things because uh, he was shipping and um, sorting orders of parts for huge earth-moving equipment and... uh, there's an airport in Hong Kong and there's an airport in Russia that was built with all the equipment that he shipped. I said, there's a couple of airports that wouldn't have been built. He goes, yeah, but of what consequence is that? And he was kind of feeling sorry for himself. And I said, you know, I understand. You just wonder all those years of going through order forms and making sure the right parts were in the order. Was it really worth it? And I said, if you ever wonder that, look at your daughter's. (laughs) that you fed and you clothed and you housed and you educated and you loved and you raised them and I got to marry one of them. Quit questioning whether this was worth it. You got to work for someone who helped you raise an incredible family. And so on this Father's Day, I don't know if he's listening, sometimes he downloads this off the internet. So dad, if you're out there, we love you. Happy Father's Day. And thank you for loving your work enough to raise your family. And that applies to every one of you dads as well, and also to your mothers. So you're doing a job, and it may be a job that you just wonder, why in the world am I spending my time doing this? Lining somebody else's pockets, making somebody else rich. But if you're doing two things, if you're bringing good into the world, and if you're bringing livelihood to your family, hold your head high. Do not listen to the lies of the evil one who will tell you, you do not matter. Because here's the thing, When we love our work and our work does something good, what we do matters. Whether you're making a widget or plumbing a house or tending a garden or raising a child, what you do matters. So don't be tempted to believe that that dehumanizing thing of meaningless toil is where you belong. That is not where you belong. If you find yourself there, move. Don't stay there. But move and do something else. I gotta tell you that when I was in seminary, I, I moved down to seminary, and neither Kaylee nor I had jobs, and so we just we just picked up and moved. I was going to start school and we prayed a lot that we wouldn't starve to death. And when I got there, I, I started looking at classified ads. This is the way you used to do it, kids. You bought a newspaper, right? <laughs> There was no monster.com or anything like that to find a job back then. And so you got a newspaper and I flipped through the newspaper and I started looking for jobs. And I wanted a job that the hours would work with my school schedule. And so I found a job as a security guard for a large security company. If I told you the name, you'd know it, and uh, many of you would. And so I called them, and I applied, and I went through all their testing, which was a little bit weird and strange. They want to make sure you're not a criminal. Did the background check, had my fingerprints done, all this stuff. I became a security guard, and as they asked me about what I was doing, and I told them I'm, I'm in seminary, I've, I finished college, and I, you know, this is what I'm doing. And they did these aptitude tests, I think, and they said, well, we've got... Uh, We would really like to have you come because we've got several places we want to train you. And so I started working for them and they trained me in these several places. So I went from one assignment to the other assignment. I, I was a security guard at a tile company, a factory that made tiles for bathrooms and kitchens. And I just went around in the middle of the night and made sure nobody came into the factory except for the trucks that were coming in and uh, bringing in raw materials and taking out completed tiles. And I stayed up all night just checking them in and walking the perimeter around this factory. I went from there to a coal, uh, the corporate offices of a coal company that mined coal. And I was there through the middle of the night. I found out that people do not hire security guards during the day very much because there's not much threat. But during the middle of the night is exactly when they want you. And that worked well with my schedule, so I stayed up all night and went to school during the day. So I was there for this coal company and I sat at their front, this marble desk in their front office and when people came in after hours, it could only be employees and I checked them in and I made sure they went where they were supposed to go and I walked around through the corporate offices and made sure they stayed there and nothing was out of line. Then they came to me and they said, we want to train you at another assignment. And this assignment involved being a courier. And so after the close of business, at the end of the day, I would pick up a leather bag that had a pair of handcuffs on it. And I would take that bag, which was locked, and I would handcuff it to my arm, and I would go with another guy who drove the car, and I would sit in the front seat of the car with that leather bag on my seat until I got to the airport, and I'd walk into a hangar, and there was a pilot there, and he would walk over, and I'd undo the handcuffs, and I'd hand him the leather bag, and he would sign a piece of paper that said he got it from me, and then I'd get back in the car, and I have no idea what was in the leather bag. I could have been carrying drugs, I don't know, but... (laughs) That was all I did. And then they came to me one day and they said, we're going to train you at a bank. And they said, in order for you to do this at the bank, you have to qualify with a firearm and you're going to, this way you'll get to work during the day. But here's how I heard it. This was my interpretation is, we're going to pay you minimum wage to put on a gun and get shot at by a bank robber. That's what I heard them say. And so I went home and I said to my dear wife, I said, I think I need to find something else to do. You know, I look back on that job. I was poorly paid and it was probably a little bit dangerous. I don't know. Although most of it was just absolutely mundane. But I got to tell you, I kind of liked doing it. I kind of liked it. It was kind of cool to wear the uniform and get out of the car with the thing handcuffed to my arm and, you know, secret agent, man. But here's why I really liked it. It paid our rent. It kept me in school until another job opened up that paid better and had better hours. And I got to work with a lot more wholesome people. Whatever you're doing, if it brings about good and provides for your family, it matters, my friends. It matters. Keep doing it. And then here's the second piece of this. As we do this kind of work, we get the opportunity to lift each other up. We get to lift up one another and we get to lift up those who are around us as well. And so whether it's your spouse and you're just doing the dishes or mowing the lawn together, when you work together, As partners, it brings honor and dignity to one another and brings fulfillment to your home. Or whether it's with somebody at work that you work with and you get to treat them with dignity that others would not extend. Do it. Do it. Give that to them and give them honor. We get to lift others up and it has something to do with who we are as to how we extend that kind of dignity to them. Just this last week I went into a fast food establishment to grab a quick lunch and there was a young African-American man behind the counter and the guy in front of me was a little bit short with him and a little bit frustrated with him and kind of chewed him out for not getting his order out as quick as he wanted and I got up there and I Ordered and he said, "You know, we just had a big order. It's going to take a few moments." I said, "That's all right. I'll still be hungry." <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like, "Is that a joke?" <laughs> and said, no, it's. I'm serious. I'll still be hungry. And 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 then I paid and he called my name and I went back up to the counter and he said, "Here's here's your lunch." And I just stopped and I said, "Hey, you know what? Thank you for feeding me today." And he stopped and he looked at me and he goes, that's an interesting way to say it. And I go, well, that's what you're doing, you know, you're you're feeding me. And, uh, And then it just popped into my mind. And I said, you know, some of the people I care about the most are the ones that have fed me in my life. My mom, my dad. And so, thank you for feeding me. And he smiled and he just goes, oh, that's a really cool way to look at it. And I just thought in those moments from a guy right before me that chewed him out because he wasn't fast and his order wasn't coming out in time, that maybe I can be a guy who gives a little bit of dignity to what he's doing. You're not just punching a time clock. You're not just sitting at a register. You're not just cranking out hamburgers. You're feeding me. You see, what you do matters, but who you are matters even more. Who you are as a person, as a being in Jesus Christ, who you are and the way that you treat people around you matters even more than what you do. So here was my father-in-law saying, you know, all I did was made sure the parts that were on paper, the parts that went out the door, and I would suggest to him and every other one of you that has a similar job, that who he was in that position, who he was with the people around him, who he was talking to people on the other side of the world that were ordering earth-moving parts, was more important than what he did. And then finally, we get to celebrate with our collaborators. I like this word, collaborators. We tend to see it as kind of a conspiratorial thing, you know. Who are the collaborators and trying to get something done that they're not supposed to do? But if you break the word down, what's in the middle of the word? Labor. Co-laborers people who work alongside us, to celebrate those who work alongside us and say, hey, what I do matters, who I am matters, and who you are matters as well. I've had the unfortunate task more than once in my ministry of coming alongside a pastor whose ministry was on its way out. They weren't being fruitful. They were not doing well in their context. There was conflict going on. I've had it happen more than once where I was asked to come and walk alongside them and say, okay, tell me what's going on in your ministry context. What is God doing and how is God using you? And then to be the one to say those hard truths where you shake your head and you go, no, God's not doing that here. It's brutal. If, I, I know some of you have been in a position where you've had to fire somebody um, and, and this is worse because we don't get to fire people from kingdom work. All we get to do is come along and say, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong position. And I've had to do this more than once and and it's, it's, it's one of the things I dread the most in ministry is coming alongside another believer in Christ and telling them that they're not bearing fruit. And so one one gentleman that I came alongside, he was in college with me. We were into college together, and he was pastoring a church in the St. Louis area, and I was asked to come alongside him, because one of the things we noticed that had become a pattern over about four or five years, is whenever he was challenged with what was not going well in his church, he always had an excuse. Well, that's because of this. And that's, that's kind of a flag for us. Whenever we excuse things, and so he we would we'd say, you know, your, your church seems to be dwindling. You don't seem to have quite the ministry impact you used to have. Well, it's because of our parking lot. It's because of the street we're located on. It's because of our building. It's because of my board. And after a while, you know, you just go, no, it's not. Because fruitful people will find a way around the parking lot and the street and the board, and they'll, they'll figure out how to serve God and bear fruit. And so I walked alongside him for a while, and finally was asked to deliver the hard news that, you know, you're not going to be reappointed here. And in fact, it was harder than that. It wasn't just, you know, we're going we're to look for another church for you. My superintendent at the time had told him, I am not going to reappoint you and I'm not going to give you a good reference to be a pastor of another church. Things had gone that bad. I'm being really nice <laughs> in how I'm describing it. And so he pushed back and said to the superintendent, I don't agree with you and I want another church. And so the superintendent said, called me up and said, you need to go down there. Take him to lunch and explain to him that he will not be a pastor in our system any longer. Oh, great. (laughs) So I did. I went down there and we sat together and he started asking me questions. And I I just finally said, you know, this isn't going to happen. The pastorate is not the place for you. It is demanding, it is hard, and sometimes we just need to step away. He didn't talk to me for two years. When I would see him, he would avoid me. I hurt him deeply. I questioned his calling. I questioned his fruitfulness. He ended up at a high school, a Christian high school, teaching And not too long ago, somebody that I know, a a mutual friend, had encountered him and said something about, oh, I I saw him, and I said, how is he doing? And he said, you know, it's amazing. (laughs) He has found his place. He loves it. The students love him. And, and I used these words, I said, is he being fruitful there? And he said, absolutely. And I'll tell you, all of the burden I carried for all those years kind of got lifted. And, and so then I thought, you know, I need to send him an email and say, I know that we went through a really hard chapter in your life together, but I want to celebrate where you're at now. I want to celebrate that what you're doing, teaching young people as a Christian educator, is a beautiful thing, and you are bearing much fruit. So I just want to suggest to you that that as we work with people around us, it's not always easy and it is not always fun, but when we find people around us who are laboring in beautiful ways, let's celebrate it because those around you matter. Let's cheer them on because those who are around you get tired and worn out and feel unappreciated. So I don't know what capacity that, that has to bear in your life, but my guess is that tomorrow morning someone here is going to go to work and they're going to see somebody and you're going to have the opportunity to go up to them and go, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Thanks for feeding me. Thanks for working with me and helping me get my job done. What you do matters. Let's pray together.